Hey everyone, and welcome to The Kodakery. I'm Megan. And I'm Josh. Today on The Kodakery, we are very excited to have one of our own, Terry Tabor, the CTO, the Chief Technology Officer of Kodak. Terry's here to talk with us about innovation, invention, and the past, present, and future of science here at Kodak. So without further ado, let's jump into The Kodakery and talk with Terry. Hey everybody, and welcome to the Kodakery. Everybody thinks of Kodak as an imaging company, and we are with a proud history in photography and film and the creative arts. But what a lot of people don't think about is that none of that imaging exists without science. Kodak has always been a science company. From the time George Eastman founded it, science has been a core to the brand. And here today to talk with us about our proud history of science and where we're going in the future is Kodak CTO, Terry Tabor. Thanks for joining us, Terry. You're welcome. So, Terry, how long have you worked at Kodak? So this is my 36th year at Kodak. I started in 1980. All right. But how long have you been the CTO? I became the CTO in January of 2009, so a little bit over seven years ago. Okay. As the CTO of Kodak, what does that mean for you? Meaning, you know, what, what is your sort of your daily mission as the CTO of Kodak? That certainly has evolved over the past seven years as we entered into Chapter 11 and then exited and came out as a new company. Uh, Today, what that means is a responsibility to speak strongly for Kodak technology and science inside and outside the company, particularly looking for those potential synergies, partnerships, applications, keeping uh, abreast of the trends and the technology needs really across the world because technology and science has become global. Uh, it always was, but now it's, it's connected like everything else. And open innovation is you know, the, uh, the key buzzword in R&D these days. And it's keeping up with the pace of change. And change is, uh, is going forward in the sciences at uh, ever-increasing rate. Yeah, it's true. What did you study in school before you started working at Kodak? So my undergraduate days at Purdue, I studied uh, chemistry. And um, I did my graduate work at Caltech, and I uh, studied uh, synthetic organic chemistry. So my Ph.D. thesis is in uh, synthesis of uh, natural products, a very common area of uh, exploration in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, from there, I, uh, I came to Kodak. Nice. So, so uh, describe to us kind of what the research labs are like. I mean, are we talking bubbling beakers and people in lab coats? What, what, what's it like today? <laughs> that, that's a very good image when George Eastman was around. <laughs> so, so today, it's, uh, it's a collection of, uh, of uh, scientists and technicians and uh, disciplines that support that. So chemists and uh, polymeric chemist, analytical scientist, uh, physicist. Um, and the laboratories have certainly have changed over the decades, and you'll find all kinds of, of sophisticated equipment to actually do experimentation, to actually look at uh, putting concepts into prototypes. And, of course, we still have the beakers and the synthetic equipment uh, to make bubbling. those materials and, <laughs> and things bubbling, but, 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 not, on, but not on the countertop. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. 
Well, what what drives some of those uh, the direction that the scientists take? So for many years, um, as was uh, mentioned before, Kodak is a science company. And over the decades, uh, in particular, we, we became very deep in three scientific areas, material science, deposition processes, um, which involves a, a variety of different sciences, uh, physics in particular, fluid mechanics, uh, fluidics, um, and image science, both uh, analog as well as digital and now uh, implementation into software. Uh, recently, earlier this year, uh, I announced that our research labs would be focused on only one of those scientific areas. And so we have really uh, taken uh, our research portfolio and directed it toward material sciences and, uh, and, and toward new materials. So what does that mean? Uh, that really covers a broad range of activity. Um, so it's about inventing new materials, and materials that can uh, do new and useful things in the variety of applications that people want in printed electronics or, or healthcare applications or 3D printing, uh, for examples. Uh, but it goes beyond inventing uh, new function, new materials. It's taking those materials and putting them into a useful formulation, uh, which has really been one of Kodak's strengths. Uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, companies and even individuals can make new materials, but putting it in a useful formulation so that it's stable and a process that you're going to use it in, that it maintains its functionality, that it maintains its integrity, meaning it does what you intend it to do, uh, is a Kodak strength. And there's science in that. It's about bringing different chemicals together to stabilize the formula, to make it useful where you want to jet it, or you want to coat it, or you want to uh, transfer it from one belt to another belt. These are all very important aspects of material science. And then the third is the integration, which I already alluded to, of the material formulation into the hardware so that works in the hardware, works with the software that drives the hardware in a concerted effort to make a very efficient, useful uh, system for whatever application it, it may, be, uh, may be targeted toward. Well. Wow. Sounds <laughs> impressive, really. <laughs> is the research labs here the only place that that happens, or is it all over the world and other places? So today, the the research labs is just in Rochester, New York. And, and it's really like uh, you know, you met, we mentioned a little bit like the legacy of invention uh, for for Kodak, and it's something that I don't think necessarily people outside of Rochester realize like how much infrastructure. George Eastman built to support innovation, to support research. I mean, the Eastman Business Park is like a Google campus before there was Google in a way. And uh, the way that uh, he supported invention and innovation throughout, you guys are really carrying that on. How, how many patents does Kodak have? So today, uh, Kodak has between four and 5,000 patents. And um, since we are in a business division structure, we have actually assigned patent families to businesses. So uh, of those, let's say, 4,500 patents, about one-third of them are associated with the research labs and the business that we've created around the research labs, which is the intellectual property solutions division. Uh, the remainder of the two-thirds of the patents 
are aligned with our business divisions. And within the business divisions, there are product R&D groups that are focused entirely on the needs and the product roadmaps, technology roadmaps of those businesses. Well, uh, give me an idea of, so we've, we've already gotten a sense of what's going on inside the research labs. A little bit of lab coat, a little bit of beaker, <laughs> but a lot of thinking. But how big are the facilities? I know mm-hmm. we have a our campus spreads very far and in very different ways, the film factory, the research labs, the uh, Eastman Business Park. And so what, what does that footprint look like? So um, the research labs are actually a, a relatively small part of, of, of what we today call Eastman Business Park, which stretches for miles. Uh, the research labs are uh, two buildings, uh, roughly about 800,000 square feet. And um, those are occupied by the Kodak Research Labs, um, the Analytical uh, Sciences Group, uh, supporting activity we have around the research labs, but also by outside tenants. Uh, We have brought in other tenants who are interested in doing research. Uh, And we also have one or two product R&D groups from the business uh, divisions within that 800,000 square feet. Cool. So one of the biggest businesses that Kodak has is in printing and printing technology. So I know that we make toners and we make ink and we make printers. I recently heard that some of the toners and inks are made organically. Is that Did I get that right? Is that true? Yeah. So, so when people mention that in terms of organic, what they're referring to is that the, the active uh, component of what makes it a useful toner or what makes it a useful ink is organic in nature as opposed to inorganic. So it's an organic compound or an organic pigment as opposed to an inorganic uh, heavy metal uh, like a cadmium-based uh, pigment. So the organic refers to the fact that the, uh, that the material, the really the, the, the science, the heart of what makes it work is an organic compound, either an organic pigment or a in the case of toners, a polymer, which is organic uh, in its very nature. Um, and that's what we mean by organic. Like, can you make it yourselves, like, from in a I, test tube? I heard the words grow. Like, like yeah, we were, ju- we were grow. thinking, like, right. like so, is it dirt? Is it imagine, like, mushrooms or something, <laughs> and we're grinding them up? Like, <laughs> So, uh, in a sense, we grow, we grow toners. Uh, the way we do that... Um, is we there are two types of toners uh, utilized today. There are ground toners, and so what's that mean? That means that we take polymeric materials and we go through sophisticated grinding machines to get them them down to sizes that are that are useful, six, seven, eight microns in size. That makes it a useful um, useful in the EP process. Uh, we actually grow toners in 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 this. Very broad interpretation <laughs> by chemically preparing them. So in that case, instead of taking a, a big particle and grinding it down, we actually grow the particles to the size that we want them. Okay. And we do that in what's called chemical prepared toners. And so we can, through that process, create uh, toner particles of a very uh, tight distribution in size and the size that we want them. So if we want six microns or whatever the size requirement may be, 
we can actually grow them to that size. Okay. Cool. Excellent. I'm still going to imagine it like with dirt in a watering can, <laughs> right. if you don't mind. <laughs> there's a toner farm. There's dirt, in, there's dirt inside the factory, so I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, like I can handle that stretch. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about some of the other printing technology we have, high-speed printing, um, you know, Prosper, Nextpress, the ways that we've innovated printing over the last bunch of years. So yes, that's one of the hallmarks of our of our printing solutions. When you th- when you think about um, Enterprise Inkjet and the Prosper, the stream writing system that it's built on, the ability to go at you know up to a thousand feet per minute, uh, twenty twenty four plus inches wide, now forty nine inches and even larger, in some of the implementations that are uh, anticipated. Uh, are recently completed, like with Bobst and with Timpsons, um, that's a big deal. And it really is the science uh, of the stream writing system, which is a Kodak invention, uh, only available to Kodak uh, because of that being uh, proprietary, in combination with the nano-pigmented inks. The two together are what allow the stream writing system in the Prosper Press or in the S component uh, uh, heads that we sell or in our partnership with Bobst on uh, the packaging press that, they, that they've built that enable high speeds at high quality at extremely efficient productivity uh, for, the, for the print shop. If I expand on that, of course, that's the hallmark in Inkjet. But if we go into, into EP, our next press is, even though it's a sheet-fed machine as opposed to roll-to-roll with, with Enterprise Inkjet, uh, it's photo quality at very high, high sheets per minute. And so in additional with the type of uh, sheet feeders that we can now bring into next press, uh, this is a very, very capable machine at photo quality output. Uh, Again, a hallmark of Kodak printing is not only the ability to print something and print it fast and uh, print it in in a variety of different modalities, whether it be EP, inkjet, flexo, digital plates, but to deliver high quality uh, at high productivity is really the hallmark of Kodak printing products. One of the examples that I, I can say that to, for our audience, we recently worked on a project with uh, Jefferson Hack from the UK, and uh, he's he is uh, uh, an author. He's written many books, and his new book is called Jefferson Hack: The System. And working with the art director and the designer, uh, they came to Kodak because they wanted to create five thousand unique book covers. So out of a press run of five thousand, each book has its own cover. So each book is a unique first edition unto itself. And we did this on the Prosper Press, the Enterprise Inkjet. And that was something where 5,000 covers were printed in less than 15 minutes. And they were able to build almost a custom algorithm so that as all of these graphic elements were being combined on the fly, each cover came out very, very differently. So it's one of these things where uh, to think about that from a creative standpoint, from an artist or from a publisher, we're enabling a level of creativity that's really never been possible before. Yeah, the you know variable data printing is really enabled by high-speed digital presses, and in order to do it in a time-efficient manner, 
and to cover the creativity of of, a, of an artist or or a book author uh, or you know even an advertiser in terms of uh, the audiences that they want to address, and so the ability to handle the printing aspect from the actual writing system is one. As you were mentioning, the ability to handle large amounts of data and prepare it for preparation to be printed on a press in a variable fashion is another hallmark of a, of a Kodak system. Those digital front end uh, hardware and software that we have uh, allow that to happen in, in harmony with the press as opposed to fighting the press. Yeah. And um, so a lot of the people that listen to the Kodakery don't necess- might not have even known until today that you know that we create these printers. So maybe we could give them a sense of like let's let's break it down. Like what what are we doing? We're making you can make magazines, newspapers. Uh, you mentioned advertisements, so Books. big big uh, signs. And I don't. Know, I think it helps because you know you s- next press prosper. Right. All these words. It's like <laughs> what are you? What are we actually talking about here? Right. So we're making we're making stuff, <laughs> making paper goods, and ma- even um, like boxes or, or things to. So so, what we're what we're um, enabling in the in the broadest sense is if you can think about printing it on some substrate, we want to be able to give you a Kodak solution to do that. So today that's paper for magazines, for books, for advertising, collateral, anything that you can think about that's on a printed page uh, of paper, we can enable and we can do it in a high quality variable data manner. But we also print on other substrates. So we print on polymeric substrates, or a lot of people just like to call them plastic substrates. And uh, for instance, the Next Press is enabled to print on, I think today it's certified for more than 800, maybe now it's 900 different substrates that can go through the Next Press uh, electrophotographic printer that we have on the market. Uh, we're also printing on cardboard. Uh, our partnership with Bobst was about inkjet printing on cardboard. Of course, we're printing on all sorts of flexible substrates for packaging, uh, both with our both with our Flexcell and X system uh, that's been a true winner in the marketplace, uh, again, because of its high quality uh, at much lower cost to get that high quality. And we're moving inkjet, our enterprise inkjet I mentioned earlier, uh, into the realm of being able to print on flexible substrates as well uh, with the combination of inks and pre-coat materials. It allows us to print high quality onto flexible substrates, uh, metals, and ultimately onto glass. Uh, That's not uh, something that's in the market yet, but uh, it's something that we're clearly working on within the research labs. And I've heard some exciting things like you'll be able to custom print floor tiles. So like if you wanted to have you know, floor tiles for a bedroom, let's say I want to do an illustration for my child's floor in her bedroom. We could actually custom print floor tiles, wallpaper, like a whole bunch of things that I don't think people ever realize you could you could print on. Absolutely. We call that industrial printing. And so if you think about printing in as broad a sense um, – you can talk about graphics, which is primarily text and graphics, images. 
You can talk about functional, which is like print electronics. You're actually printing something to perform a, a useful function. Industrial, you're printing it for some people call it architectural, printing it for use within a house or building or an establishment. And then, of course, 3D printing, which we haven't touched upon yet. And so Kodak is enabling across all of those different printing modalities. And uh, one of the things that Kodak is displaying at Drupa, which starts next week, uh, first week of June, is um, the UltraStream inkjet system, which will better enable users of that system to print on ceramics or on countertops or on wallpaper in the high-quality fashion that they come to expect from Kodak. Nice. And for our audience out there, Drupa is a massive uh, print conference and trade show in Germany. It's kind of like the Olympics of print. It comes along every four years. It goes on for two weeks. It's a huge, huge event. And Kodak is going to have a really exciting booth there. Um, it's going it's to be great. Now, now you mentioned 3D printing. Let's let's jump into that and talk to a little bit. Could you, uh, before we start talking about our specific kind of new uh, announcements and partnerships, 3D printing as a as a trend, right? We all have heard about it a lot, and I've seen some really awesome videos where people are making Yodas and all kinds of stuff in their home. <laughs> but, well, could you talk a little bit about kind of where it's come from, where you think it's going to go? Certainly. So, um, I actually had the um, the privilege recently to meet the founder of 3D printing um, with uh, created 3D systems back in the early 1980s. And uh, that was remarkable because when you think about it, that's over 30 years ago. But it's, you know, 3D printing now is only becoming, you know, the big buzz that it is, uh, which is not atypical for these disruptive technologies. So, yes, 3D printing, people talk about it from uh, printing children's toys all the way to printing like the table that we're sitting in front of and everything in between and beyond like uh, human body parts replacement for bones and organs, things that are very futuristic. Um, so how does Kodak fit into that? Well, we bring um, some science and again comes back to our, the materials discussion we had earlier. Uh, what enables the broad application of 3D printing will ultimately be the range of materials uh, that, that are available to produce the article that you want with the type of strength and durability, in some cases color, that you want. Um, and today we're seeing just the beginning of applications where those materials are becoming available. But as you might expect, our interest in 3D printing is around how we can broaden the range of materials that are available that would uh, really move 3D printing from a, uh, a novelty to where it is now kind of a prototype uh, uh, application, eventually to being an additive manufacturing solution. And so the revolution has gone from novelty to prototype. Now how do you move from pro prototype to, to additive manufacturing, it's going to be a material solution integrated with continuing enhancements on the hardware that actually print, print in, in the broadest sense. And do you see this being something that, you know, as we kind of, a lot of people talk about kind of the maker society we live in, like the world of Kickstarter, and there, there's almost like 
There's mass creation like we do at Kodak, and then there's a, a market of, of people who are developing their own products and their own kind of small invention and innovation. Do you see 3D printing continuing uh, for both audiences, or do you think it's going to head more toward kind of like a larger scale type additive manufacturing? Like, wh where do you see it going? So, uh, from a business perspective, um, and, and the area that I would see Kodak interested in, it's really on the additive manufacturing, the industrial application, if you will, uh, to bring solutions into into the manufacturing arena. That has a lot of challenges to get to there from where we are, are today uh, in, in the ability to create prototypes. But if you want to create 100,000 of something in a 3D printer, that's not going to happen today in a short period of time, in a reasonable amount of time. The desktop or the consumer market, if you will, the dispersion of 3D printing into, into the broader uh, app, uh, broader markets, if you um, consumer markets. Uh, I do believe that that will also evolve. It will have a totally different set of business dynamics as you might as you would anticipate with a consumer space versus a, a manufacturing space. Uh, there may be materials that Kodak could bring to that market, but I think the more attractive market from a business standpoint, from a technology challenge standpoint, and so from a ultimately a profitability standpoint is in the industrial manufacturing right. space. And so so could you tell us a little bit about Carbon? That's an announcement that we made recently that we've partnered with, with Carbon 3D. Could you tell us a little bit about their technology and what brought us to them and them to us? Certainly. So Carbon 3D is a, uh, a startup company in the uh, Silicon Valley of the United States, west coast of the United States. And we have been talking with them for some time and, and as announced earlier this year, signed a joint development agreement with Carbon 3D, uh, commonly now referred to as Carbon. And it's a nice synergy of capability. We bring material science. They bring uh, uh, a solution that has integrated the ability to use light to actually do real-time 3D printing. And, so, uh, and the materials, the initial materials to actually demonstrate that that concept works. And they have multiple beta units out in the marketplace. So what makes them unique? What makes them unique is really uh, the speed at which they can print. So I called it real-time 3D printing in that the object is actually printed uh, from a, a pool of resin. And it's pulled out of the pool and as it's pulled out, the, the image is created with control of light and control of oxygen. And so it prints 100 times faster than the standard 3D printing process in the market, which is called fused filament or UV curable inkjet. Both of those, the process that they use is they will deposit, lay down one layer, and then they'll put a layer on top of that. And so it's layer after layer after layer going over the kind of the same territory that they did, but at different depositions to create the object that you want to create. Oftentimes that fused filament or curable inkjet requires some supporting infrastructure that is waste, has to be pulled away, as opposed to the carbon uh, approach is uh, what comes out is exactly what you want. 
And, and so that's why I call it real-time 3D printing. And it's hard to visualize until you actually see it work. And anybody wants to Google it, Carbon 3D, you can find all kinds of YouTubes that yeah. actually yep. show <laughs> it being demonstrated. Yeah, and, and just as a note to our, our viewers, uh, I, I've watched many videos of this, like Megan says, or we've been watching it, and it looks like a science fiction movie. Like the first time I started watching it, I was like, that is not real. <laughs> and then after I was like, I got over that part, I was like, where's my hoverboard and my jetpack? Because I live in the future now. I mean, it's <laughs> crazy. It's like, it looks like a pool of jello, and they pull a perfectly formed Eiffel Tower out of it, like almost in real time. It's incredible. So we'll we'll put links in the uh the, the notes to the show here. So anybody who wants to see it, you can check it out. So you mentioned you mentioned science fiction. Um, I, I have to give this uh, the origin, uh, as, uh, as the founder is, has indicated, of how he came about thinking about uh, the carbon 3D process because it has a motion picture reference in it. And I can't, I can't skip a motion picture <laughs> reference. <laughs> so... So the, f- uh, the, uh, the founder, the inventor of the carbon 3D process is Professor Joe DeSimone, who just recently was awarded the uh, National Medal of uh, Technology f- uh, by President Obama um, for a variety of inventions, this being one of them. And so uh, how did he come up with this? Uh, well, he, if you know the, the terminary... Terminator movie series. Oh, I do. Uh, <laughs> Shocker. The, the liquid Terminator uh-huh. uh, that kind of regenerates itself. itself. Uh, he saw that and he says, that's how I went to 3D print. Come on. Amazing. And, and so he said, okay, how do I take that and actually make it into something that operates in a similar fashion? And that's the carbon 3D process. Wow. Someday somebody much smarter than me will write a book about how much science fiction has actually impacted real technology. A lot. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible when you hear people talk about, oh, I want to do gesture-based computing because I saw Minority Report or now right. The Terminator. <laughs> All it takes is an idea. That's right. And then a, somebody really smart. And some nerds. <laughs> an yeah. idea and some and nerds. nerds. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so um, let's talk about some of the other um, cool stuff we are working on now. Um, I know we make um, antimicrobial clothing. So uh, uh, Josh likes to coin that as uh, the non-stinky T-shirt. <laughs> never stinky. Oh, t-shirt. never stinky. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I know some of the some people at Drupa are going to be wearing them, but um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Certainly. So uh, antimicrobials have become uh, a big player. They've actually been in the in in the marketplace for decades. And uh, no surprise that as Kodak, as we considered what we might bring um, into the antimicrobial industry, uh, we looked to no further than silver salts. Um, Silver actually has been known for centuries to have antimicrobial activity. Silver coins were used on cuts. Uh, Silverware was used to store foods uh, many centuries ago. And so it's always been known that there's this, there's this capability with silver-containing materials um, to have this effect. And so over the last decade, we've actually um, developed a variety of silver salts. Uh, the one that you mentioned with the, uh, we like to call it the anti-odor T-shirt, but the, uh, the one that you mentioned is our most recent silver salt, which is actually embedded into the fibers uh, that are then used to, to create the T-shirt. Now, 
less than 10% of the fibers actually have any silver in them. Uh, and the fibers that do have really small amounts of silver in them. Uh, but yet, because of the efficacy of the silver salt that we've uh, developed, that's sufficient to kill odor-causing bacteria. That's how you get, that's how you get anti-odor. It's bacteria that cause the odor. We kill the bacteria, therefore there's no odor. One of the other aspects of that, of course, is the durability. It's one thing, well, one could say if it doesn't have any odor, you don't need to wash it, but people wash their clothes. <laughs> um, so the durability of our silver salt, because of the way it's embedded into the fibers, it lasts many, many, as far as we can tell, more than 100 washes and maintains its uh, efficacy uh, in the article of clothing. But we're thinking more broadly for, for that uh, silver antimicrobial. And we're going to talk about uh, some of those applications. We're actually going to bring some materials uh, to Drupa that shows um, some of those applications. So we're thinking about how do we take that silver salt and how do we coat it out on flexible films? Uh, why would we want to do that? So think about your touchscreen protector on your phone or your tablet or your computer. What if you could put an antimicrobial uh, protector over it? Be good for all of us. Yeah, Be good for all of us. It, yeah. <laughs> uh, or how about when you're on an airplane and you you lower the uh, the the tray, tray in front of the tray table in front of you? What if it had on it a Kodak silver? Uh, flexible protector screen or one that you could apply to the trade table because you carried it with you onto the onto right. the plane. <laughs> or cruise ships, what if you could apply uh, Kodak flexible antimicrobial films to the, uh, to the banisters on the stairs or any touchable surfaces because cruise ships, you have a lot of people in a confined space. So we're thinking about uh, how do we can bring that technology into flexible coatings. We're going to show a few examples. The, these are very much in the early research stage, but a few examples of to show that it's possible to create such an article. Uh, we're also looking at uh, are there any healthcare applications that we can utilize uh, currently, and we're going to show an example of that at Drupa as well, where we actually use our EP process to apply the silver antimicrobial through the toner. We've embedded the silver antimicrobial in the EP toner. We print the article, in this case it happens to be a, uh, a cough uh, box. And if you cough into the box, the antimicrobial coating that's applied through the toner actually kills 99 plus percent of the germs that go into that box. Wow. Much better than a, than a Kleenex. Well, right. It's flopping <laughs> uh, all over or the place. We could apply this to a Kleenex as well, but, but a, an ordinary Kleenex. So we're looking at broadening the space that we can apply the antimicrobial. And even though the anti-odor shirt is cool, uh, <laughs> we think there are other healthcare right. applications oh, yeah. that have, have much more value. <clears throat> right, right. It would really help people. I mean, it, that's really exciting. Seriously. <laughs> um, I'm sure we could talk about that for a while, but um, let's let's go on to something else. So I know we make um, light blocking curtains. I have some because, <laughs> you know, when you wake up and it's still sunny, you want to keep sleeping. But <laughs> so they already make them. What are we doing? Why are we making more? Yeah, good question. So let me put this in context. Um, 
We talked about the research labs. Um, within the last year, we've put around the research labs a business division. Uh, that business division is called Intellectual Property Solutions. And um, the intent is to create new businesses from the research technologies and the science that we have within the research labs. And so the light blocking materials came um, through that channel of how do we create new businesses with research technologies. We're really in that intellectual property solutions looking uh, for four different platforms for, for business growth. One is small particle technology. That's where the light blocking materials come into play, and I'll talk about that. Second is smart materials. Um, we, we talked a little bit about that with antimicrobials, but I can enhance, enhance upon some other smart materials. The carbon 3D materials would be smart materials. Healthcare, healthcare applications, that's a, the third platform. Uh, antimicrobials also fit there. And then the fourth is high-resolution imaging. So those are, those are the four platforms for growth. Now let's talk about the light-blocking materials. So that falls into our small particle technologies. Um, we've created particles uh, with pores where we can actually scatter light, reflect light. We can control light in different ways. And um, so one of the first applications we actually looked at was putting them on curtains because, as you mentioned, uh, light-blocking curtains are useful in homes, in hotels, in conference rooms. And uh, today, uh, they've become more widespread. The manufacturing process for those curtains is actually fairly complex. Uh, it requires four different layers, uh, generally speaking, uh, in order to provide uh, the light blocking capability that is desired. Um, it's a process that incorporates carbon block, which is, as you might imagine, uh, a block material. It's it's very fine particle. It's difficult to work with uh, in a manufacturing environment, so it requires a lot of uh, handling and cleanup to deal with. And uh, our solution, the Kodak solution, is a one-layer solution. So it's one layer versus four. It can be done using the same manufacturing equipment, so there's no new capital investment. Uh, but it simplifies the manufacturing process entirely, and it doesn't use carbon block. So it gets rid of a, of a really awkward material to handle, and uh, it simplifies the manufacturing process. Uh, the light blocking capability with the one-layer solution matches the four-layer solution. And so we're bringing, we're bringing a, a, a very much improved material to the existing manufacturing process that will really change the business dy dynamics of that industry. Beyond that, because we're a deposition company, <laughs> uh, we also have a, uh, started to explore and develop alternative ways simpler ways to apply the particles to textiles. So you can get the light blocking uh, solution with even a more simplified and, and probably, probably a more uniform, uniformly applied solution based on what we understand about deposition and coating materials. So that's a future step. 
The light blocking materials themselves are in the stage where we're we're talking with textile manufacturers today who who make light blocking curtains to convert some of their manufacturing over to our particle solution. Terry, a little bit back in the beginning of the interview, you, you mentioned open innovation and that uh, that's a trend in science. Could you tell the audience a little bit about like what that means and, and uh, how you think that's going to impact the future? Yes. Yeah, so open innovation uh, is a concept that really has grown in the last, uh, I'll say, five years or so. It's been around longer than that, but it's really mushroomed uh, into a big business over the last five years. So, you know, in briefly, the concept is if I have a problem that I want to solve, let's just say it's a scientific problem, I can use, you know, whatever organization I'm in, whether it's a university or a company or, or you know, my, my lab out in my garage to try and solve that scientific problem. But wouldn't it be great if I had, you know, 100,000 people helping me to come up with a solution rather than one or 10 or 100. And so this is really enabled by by the web uh, of being able to connect uh, groups of, of interested people uh, and people of like disciplines, if you will, to approach uh, a problem. So I put a scientific problem statement out there and uh, – through the mechanism of the web and, you know, some participation fees and things of that sort, ideas come in and, you know, you sort through that and you get the power of numbers to solve problems. Um, That's evolved from web-based solutions to partnership-based solutions where you might have 100 universities and 20 companies in an open innovation partnership so that, Collectively, they all participate, and that means they all financially support it. And they use that subgroup, uh, but it's a larger group, to solve problems that are of interest to any one of the participants. And there are open innovation companies who help facilitate that to happen, either on the web or in these larger groups of universities and companies. So the idea is to connect people larger groups of people to solve problems faster. Right. And, That's great. And, That's awesome, and yeah. if it's faster, generally speaking, faster is less costly when it comes to R and D investment. So so that concept is is starting to to evolve and um, it will you know it will take its course and it will find its most valuable places to add uh, to be utilized. Uh, we, Kodak, don't utilize that structure in quite the same way. We've done a couple of things that are that are certainly along that nature. Uh, for many years, we've had university relationships uh, where we will sponsor research projects at certain universities. You know, prior to Chapter 11, we had probably a dozen or so universities we were doing research-sponsored projects. Um, after Chapter 11, it's it's le- much less than that, but we're still doing them. And that opens up academic groups to address Kodak, um, interesting problems to Kodak, interesting scientific areas to Kodak. So that's kind of a, a controlled open innovation, if you will. 
What we're doing differently today externally is we're really looking for partnerships. And so I mentioned the carbon partnership. That's We will learn from carbon as much as they will learn from us in this partnership. Uh, they'll get our material science uh, knowledge. We'll get their 3D knowledge. And collectively, we might decide to go do something else because of the knowledge we've built, carbon and Kodak together. Or we may decide that they're... Um, there are other ways that this could be applied in non-3D printing spaces, and, and that could be open for a discussion between Carbon and Kodak as do we want to pursue that together or independently. We're looking for those partnerships where we have capabilities in material science where there's a synergy or a complement to what we bring. So... Um, we're not investing in some other sciences like biosciences. And yet we have some materials capabilities that might marry well with biosciences to create point-of-care health solutions. Right. That's, the That's the partnership. That's the open innovation part that we're trying to approach through, um, I, you can call them, very specific, very defined open innovation groups mm -hmm. as opposed to just opening up um, to the open innovation network that's um, in the broader, you know, global, worldwide web or these uh, consulting groups. doesn't mean that we will never use that web approach or the open innovation groups in the future. No, it doesn't mean that. It just means right now we feel that and, and I particularly feel that this is the best pathway for Kodak where we are today. And as we learn from that, we will certain, certainly expand on that. Now, the open innovation concept has value. So um, one of the teams that was created out of the, um, the survey that we did a couple years ago was around innovation. And one of the recommendations that they have is around open innovation. So stay tuned for some very cool news on how open innovation can be utilized inside Kodak uh, in the next few weeks. That's awesome. I mean, it just seems like such a great way to get a diversity of thought and to bring you know, all kinds of people together to work on a problem. It seems really exciting. I, I look forward to this, uh, this news that you just teased mm. out. I, I'm, it's exciting. So I, I look forward to it as well. Cool. Nice. So, uh, Terry, I guess you know, we, we uh, want to be mindful of your time. It's been a really great conversation. Um, one question I kind of wanted to, to end with is uh, innovation and invention and science has always been such a core part of the Kodak brand, sort of in our DNA. Um, how important do you see it for the future of the company? So you're asking the CTO how important science is. Oh, I know, I know. But, but, but in a, in a it's it's critical, right? Uh, you know, all kidding aside, uh, investment in science and technology is what uh, allows the future to happen. It enables the future. Without dreams, and whether it's through innovation or invention, whether it's on the science side or it's on the marketing side or it's on the manufacturing side, without dreams, there's no future. And so, you know, as CTO, yes, I have a vested interest in making sure that we continue to invest in science and that we continue to uh, utilize our science in ways that 
help us grow new businesses and then allow us to expand our science capability. But collectively within the company, uh, the, our ability to dream, to innovate, to imagine, to invent is at the core of creating the future. We are creating uh, in those ways not only the future of Kodak in 2016 and 2017, but in 2025, and in some cases in 2035, because uh, fundamental inventions often take a couple of decades to be realized uh, in a mainstream product. So it's absolutely at the heart of any company that is going to grow and sustain itself over time. And so it's a great question. It's an easy question for me to answer <laughs> uh, because I have seen the power of science and technology, not only in my 36 years of Kodak, but interacting with all these other companies outside of Kodak. And, you know, one of the, one of the real uh, supporting um, pieces of, inf- of evidence to how important this is is when I go out and talk with companies, whether they be 10-people companies or 10,000-person companies, the Kodak name, and particularly the Kodak ability to innovate and invent, is very recognized and appreciated outside the company. And they realize that that's the type of culture, the type of ability that they want to create their future company. So sometimes, because we're in the midst of it, we don't often take the time to appreciate what we have. This is something that we definitely need to appreciate every day, and it's what we will build the future on. So thank you for the question. Thank you for the conversation, yeah, thank you for Terry. coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. It is a great satisfaction to be able to speak to you through the medium of this wonderful invention. Hey, guys. Like what you're hearing? Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes.